Hello, my name's Shane. I'm part of the New Hope family here. And my job tonight is to open the scripture. And I, I take that really, really seriously. So anytime we do that, I want a couple things to happen for you. I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and scriptures get bigger, not smaller. For us, Jesus is not somebody simply to believe in, but rather Jesus is somebody to fundamentally shape the way we see our whole world. And so I hope that I bring at least part of that uh, to bear tonight. Because when you look at these scriptures, you want to ask a couple questions. One, what happened? Two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And ultimately, may we say our next yes in order to be more of what God has called us to be in the world. All right, so if you're the type who likes to follow along an actual Bible, if you want to turn to the book of Matthew, or sorry, the book of Luke 23, we're going to talk about, get there in just a second. It was such a good honor to be with you this morning. If you were here this morning, awesome. If you weren't, let me summarize this morning's message in 30 seconds. That Christianity is not being an expert in climate, health, politics, or theology. Christianity is intentionally seeing the world how Jesus saw the world, seeing God how Jesus saw God, applying scripture how Jesus applied scripture in order to honor righteousness righteousness and holiness, to wake up every single day intent on making somebody else's life better by honoring the gift of God's breath on my life today. And every second I spend on foolish controversies or quarrels about the law, that's a second I cannot spend doing good in my world and therefore profane the gift of the holy instead of hallowing it. That's this morning. I thought that was a pretty good effort. Tonight, I want to look at Jesus's trial because Jesus is not someone to believe in. Demons believe in Jesus. Jesus is somebody who is meant to shape the way we see all things. And I want to look at Jesus' trial, not to, and I'm going to unpack, it's going to take me about, I don't know, 17, 18 minutes to unpack the history of it. And then I want to spend the rest of the time sort of examining what's happening in me right now because of what we just saw. So this, Luke 23, is one of the records of Jesus' trial, and frankly, it makes no sense. So let's look at it, because when something makes no sense, there might be a story underneath the story that makes the story make more sense. This is Luke 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, which, by the way, in our world means a king. I want you to notice right off the bat, they do not accuse him of blasphemy, as if Pilate would have cared what this guy's opinion was about God. That doesn't make any sense. What they accuse him is treason, being a rabble-rouser, coming against the peace of Rome and the occupation of Rome in the area. They're accusing him of, of claiming to be subversive to Caesar by being another kind of king. So Pilate does what any reasonable judge would do. Are, are you the king of the Jews? I love Jesus' response. He's like, bro, I mean, you've said so. I, like, I, listen, I'm standing in your world, right? I'm standing in your courtroom. I'm standing in your, yay, I am who you say I am. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I don't find a basis to charge this guy. This is not a proclamation of Jesus' sinlessness, although I'm with you right? Pilate would have no authority about that. Pilate's saying, you're saying he's a rabble rouser. I don't really see it. He seems to be pretty agreeable to me. Uh, but they insisted, no, no, no. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teachings. He started in Galilee, come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now on the surface, this story makes no sense. 
First of all, why is the head honcho of the entire region getting out of bed in the middle of the night to hear one complaint about one guy? That's weird. Like, that'd be like you knocking on Anastasia Palaszczuk's door at two o'clock in the morning to tell her you had a problem with a neighbor, and she's like, well, come on in. Let's see if we can sort it out. That doesn't make any sense. And then there's all kinds, there's two head honchos going on here. Then they're going back and forth. What's going on there? The top two head honchos in the whole thing are getting out of bed in the middle of the night and hear one complaint about one guy. That's strange. And then it leads to more questions, like next slide. If Jesus' main message was to believe in him in order to go to heaven, why kill him? Is that really worth killing? If Jesus' whole thing was, hey, say this magic prayer so one day you can go somewhere else, that's hardly worth killing somebody over. It's hardly rabble-rousing Rome. If Jesus' main message was to take care of the poor, is that really worth killing him? Really? Like, if his main message was, those of you who have, share with those of you who don't, that's not worth killing somebody over. The third question I have is, is why not kill him yourself? Like, if you really want it, why do you need Rome to do your dirty work? As if there wasn't some sort of backdoor, back alley Jewish contingency that can sort people out. You know, like, hey, hey, let's lure them behind this alley and we got a posse of guys. We're going to sort. Like, it's not like that wasn't around, but they needed Rome to do it. Why do you need Rome to do what you just want to do? That's weird. And fourth, why are both Herod and Pilate even in Jerusalem? They lived in Caesarea. Why, if you have a mansion on the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea, would you ever want to come to Jerusalem, which is sort of hotter and dirtier, and it's where the lower class people live? Why would you? Nothing in this story makes sense. And when nothing makes sense, that normally means there's a story underneath the story that makes the story make more sense. I happen to know that story. <laughs> oh, I've really just wasted all of your time. I'm going to share it with you. And uh, hopefully it makes the whole thing explode. To understand this, we've got to understand the rule of Rome. See, in 44 BC, there was this guy named Julius Caesar. It's amazing. He, 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 he successfully united the whole world under one rule. Um, he, he claimed to be God in flesh. As a matter of fact, the Roman historian Virgil said, in the fullness of God was found Julius Caesar and no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of Caesar. Does that sound familiar? They said he would bring peace on earth and goodwill to all men and would multiply bread for all people. This was Julius Caesar. He's a very busy guy uniting the whole world. He also invented the salad. He was an amazing dude. <laughs> amazing guy. If you, know, if you know your story, you know that eventually he got killed by being stabbed in the back by his best friend, a guy named Brutus. This sort of hurt his God claims, right? The, if follow along, like the idea was is if you were God, you should have seen that coming, Right? People shouldn't be able to stab God in the back. That'd be weird. So Julius Caesar dies. Well, his adopted nephew, a guy named Octavius, who saved him from behind enemy lines in a place called Gaul. Julius Caesar was so impressed by that, he adopted him as his adopted son. He was actually his great nephew, and he named him the heir to be the next Caesar. That guy's name was Octavius, who took on the title Caesar Augustus, which is a very familiar one for us. So Caesar Augustus is like, look, I need to pounce on this, right? So he says, hey, my father was God. That makes me the son of God. Now, this is where it gets a bit interesting, right? At Julius Caesar's funeral, it says that a strange star appeared in the sky. Roman historians say that it lit up the day and night sky for seven days. Obviously a bit of an exaggeration, but what they said was, was it was such a strange star and so bright that it appeared and then it shot across the sky and lit up the day and night sky for seven days. So, so Caesar Augustus pounces on this. He says, see, 
That proves that my father was God and he has now just ascended to the heavens to take his seat amongst the council of the gods. Now think about that. If you're in a primitive sort of world with no telescopes and at the moment of a funeral where a guy who said he was God is being honored, a strange star appears and shoots across, this was unbelievable confirmation that this guy was actually God and he was taking a seat amongst the councils of the gods. Now, astronomers know now that it was a comet that came really close to Earth. They, they've named it Caesar's Comet. And with the right computer program, they can tell you where in the universe this thing is circling now. But back then, they just thought a strange star appeared in the sky. So Caesar Augustus pounces on this, and he's got to get word from Spain to India that he is God in flesh, and it's been confirmed by a strange star in the sky. If you're not paying attention, come back to me now. Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of God, and this was confirmed by strange star appearing in the sky. Now, how do you get word about this from Spain to India? There's no internet. There's no social media. There's no news. How do you get word around? So in the early Roman empire, if they wanted to get word around the empire, they printed it on money. The reason is, is because money found its way around the empire. So Caesar Augustus minted this coin. Next slide. If you could bring up the slide with the coin, Zoe. This is the Caesar Augustus star coin. You can see Caesar Augustus there on the left. And on the right is the tail side. It's a giant star. And around that star, it says, God saves us. So Caesar Augustus minted this coin that ran around the world that said, hang on, I'm the son of God. And this has been confirmed by a giant star in the sky. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Can you see where in Matthew, where the people come, the wise men come from the east and they look for the king of the Jews. And they said, we have seen his star. In other words, Caesar has his star. Our guy has his star. Let's see which one ultimately wins out. So he confirmed this with strange stars and with coins. So Caesar Augustus said, hey, since I'm the son of God, I should be worshiped. And since I'm the son of God, I should be worshiped primarily. So Caesar Augustus instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth. It lasted from December 19th to December 31st every year. And he called it, and this is true, Advent. It was called the Advent of Caesar Augustus, and it led up. The Roman Empire changed New Year's Day to conform to the end of the 12-day celebration of Caesar Augustus's birth that lasted from December 19th to December 31st. On the first day of Christmas. So you have all of this going on. In 37 BC, there was a king that you might be familiar of. His name was Herod the Great. And Herod the Great sided with Caesar Augustus in a civil war against Brutus and Pompey. This was a great move because Caesar Augustus destroyed the rebellion in something called the Battle of Philippi. Another message for another time. Caesar Augustus awarded Herod the Great's uh, loyalty by awarding him with a token kingdom of Israel. In 4 BC, Herod the Great died. Caesar continued to honor Herod's loyalty by splitting the kingdom of Israel into three regions, the Judean region in the south, the Galilean region in the middle, and the, and the, um, and the northern region. The northern region he gave to Herod's son, Philip. The Galilean region he gave to Herod's son, Herod, and the Judean region he gave to his son Archelaus. Now, in 22 AD, Archelaus made such a mess of Judea that they banished him to Gaul and replaced him with a guy named Pilate. Yes, this 
Pilate. So the Judean region was run by Pilate. The Galilean region was run by Herod. And the northern region was won by Philip. And that is why in the north of Israel, there's a city called Caesarea Philippi. Literally a city built to honor Caesar by Philip. This is Philip saying, don't forget me, Caesar. I love you. This guy is a brown noser like you cannot believe. Herod Antipas was in charge of the Galilean region, and they called him the fox. Remember in the book of Luke, it says, hey, Jesus, Herod's looking to kill you. And Jesus said, you tell that fox exactly where I am. And Pilate was called the eagle. We'll talk about that in a second. Remember Jesus said something like, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. This is like in your face sort of confrontation stuff, which leads me to this. Why is Pilate called the eagle? Next slide. So this is a Roman Aquila. It was the universal sign of military dominance when you're occupying a foreign country. Um, they would put a, a, an eagle on top of a stick, a flagpole. We've never seen this before, have we? Right? God bless America. Right, so you have that. If you think, if you think back to your um, Nazi history, when Hitler would come in to take over place, they would have banner bearers, and on the top of those flags were those birds. Remember they... So this eagle became the, the sign of Roman dominance. There's a movie based on a true story called Pompeii. And remember the Celtic warrior smuggles the Roman Aquila into the gladiator arena and he points at the Roman senator and he breaks it. This was like an in-your-face sort of confrontation because that eagle on a stick was important, which leads to this question. Why was Pilate and Herod even in Jerusalem when Jesus was arrested? The reason is, is because Jesus was arrested around a feast called Passover. What happened was, is, is Caesar put Pilate in charge of the Judean region after kicking Archelaus out. And here was this whole thing. These Jews tend to riot a lot. And your job is, to, this is your one and only job. Keep peace in Jerusalem. No rioting by these lunatic Jews, right? So he gave them a mansion in Caesarea, as well as Herod. But their job was to keep a riot from happening, which leads to this question. What was Passover? Well, Passover was a yearly celebration, a feast, where every Jew came from everywhere to Jerusalem. They ate the largest meal of the year, followed by four glasses of wine, followed by singing and dancing, singing songs about God's will to deliver them from whoever is oppressing them. Think about that. If your job is to keep a riot from happening, is there an environment conducive to a riot ever that would be more conducive to a riot than 250 thousand people getting together, drinking four glasses of wine, and then singing songs about God's will to deliver them from you because you are the evil oppressor. Think about this. You live in Toowoomba. What if 250,000 people gathered in the middle of Toowoomba who are followers of another religion, and they started singing songs in unison about God's will to deliver them from you? That would make us all feel a little bit uneasy. This is what's going on. So what would happen every year at Passover is Pilate would leave his mansion in Caesarea, Herod would leave his mansion in Caesarea, and they would descend upon Jerusalem with army forces in order to make sure a riot didn't break out at Passover. And here's what Pilate would do. He would take that eagle on a stick. And now you got to picture this. Thousands of people doing what we were just doing, singing songs about God's will to deliver us, hope in this, hope in that, right? We're singing songs about God's will to deliver us. And Pilate would come in on a war horse. 
He had the biggest horse in the cavalry. He would come in riding his war horse and he would stop and he'd point that eagle on a stick at you. And if he pointed that eagle on a stick at you, you had to stop and acknowledge that the only reason I can sing is because Rome allows me to sing. Rome didn't care if you worshiped another God. Rome just wanted you to know that your God himself submits to Rome. As a matter of fact, in the 20s BC, Herod the Great, to show his loyalty to Rome, put a giant aquila, a giant eagle over the top of the temple in Jerusalem, essentially saying, even our God surrenders to Rome. Four overzealous rabbi students climbed the pole and pulled the eagle down. They burned them alive. Again, any thought you've ever had, boy, can you believe how bad this world is? Please consider it's actually better than it's ever been. This is not just a story about one guy's trial or one group's feast. This is a story about me and it's a story about you. And it's a story about Jesus not just wanting to get us to heaven when we die, but to take on all the eagles on a stick everywhere. This is about we can sing all the songs we want to as long as we acknowledge there's something else over our life. The eagle on a stick is that idea that says, hey, sing whatever you want. But when you go to bed at night, you know that anger's got you. You know worry's got you. You know anxiety's got you. You know your lust has got you. You know your fear has got you. That eagle on a stick is everything that reminds us that there is something else other than the power of Jesus that is, is at work um, in, in our lives. And so Pilate would come in to Israel in Passover riding a war horse. Hang on a second. Who also entered the city at Passover? Jesus. And what was he riding? donkey. Let me show you a map. Next slide. Here is a map that the great Michael Slater helped me draw arrows on. <laughs> so, Pilate lived in Caesarea, up on the roof somewhere. And that red line indicated how he came in on his war horse. He came in through Caesarea, through the F, over that valley, that valley, by the way, is called Gehenna or hell. So Pilate comes in riding a war horse through hell and enters the city that way because that's where the army barracks were. At the exact same time, Jesus comes into the city from Bethesda to, through Bethsaida, through the Mount of Olives. So what he would do is Jesus is the blue line. He would come through the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a giant cemetery. It's the biggest graveyard you have ever seen. There are no olives on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a giant cemetery. And what would be in a cemetery? Stones. Yes, dead people. I said, what's in a cemetery? Somebody here is like dead people. Yes. Yes, heaps of dead people. They're, the dead people are in the cemetery. But the dead people are held in these stones, They're these above-ground sarcophagus sort of, sort of things. So uh, just to review on the map. So Pilate comes down through hell into the city riding a war horse. Jesus comes through the Mount of Olives Cemetery where there's a lot of stones into the city through the temple riding a donkey. Let me show you a picture of the Mount of Olives Cemetery. Next slide. Here is the Mount of Olives Cemetery. It's the biggest, it's miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of dead bodies. And they, the ground was too hard. They couldn't, they couldn't put them underground. They're in these above ground things. Like that's Zachariah's tomb there. That's Malachi's tomb. That's Micah's tomb. They used to charge people an exorbitant fee to be buried there. 
The reason is, is because they, they believe that when the return of, of God came and the kingdom of God was established from Jerusalem, there would be a massive resurrection. And the idea was, is if you were buried in the Mount of Olives, you'd have the shortest walk into the city. <laughs> it's that. It's that. As you can see, you got a road that goes down the Mount of Olives where there's buses now. That's the road Jesus would have taken just without asphalt and cement. It would have been more of a, a dirt road. Here's a, next slide. Here, here's an here's a up close View, this is me standing on the road. It's just dead, that, that, there's, there's a dead person in there. And, and that tells you all about it. And they, they, they're, they're, they're in there and they, that, that's what Jesus was riding his donkey through at the Mount of Olives. Next slide. So as a review, Pilate comes down through the F riding a war horse in hell. Jesus comes through the Mount of Olives Cemetery where there's a heap of gravestones riding a donkey to enter the city through the temple. Now, that is my best effort explaining the geopolitical and religious history of the story. With that as the backdrop, let's see if we read the story a bit differently. Next slide. This is Luke 21. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend a night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. How clever is that? Hey, that makes sense. It's just right there. First of all, second of all, if you, have you read a moment where you were just sick of people? And you just wanted to get, is there a better way to get away from people than to camp out between the gravestones? <laughs> Imagine that. Somebody, where's Jesus? I want to talk to him. Well, you can go find him, bro. It's the middle of the night. He's out there amongst those gravestones somewhere. I'm good. <laughs> I, 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 I'm good. And all the people came early in the morning, yeah, to hear him at the temple. Of course they did. This is, uh, this is uh, Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now in Hebrew, this is a remez. This is a hint or an illusion. When the Jewish people in the first century quoted half of a prophecy, they were assuming that the people listening would complete what they couldn't say. It's called a remez. It's like these people had memorized the whole Bible. So if I said, if I said, it's like if I said, hey, remember, for God so loved the world that he, and you go, oh, gave his only, right? right? It, it would be that, right? So the, in this instance, Matthew quotes half of a prophecy from Zechariah. Here's the question. What's the whole prophecy say and what would the listeners have heard? Here's the whole prophecy. Next slide. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's what Matthew quotes. Here is the end of the prophecy from Zechariah. And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and the glory of God will come from sea to shining sea. This, this is an end. Can you see why Matthew left the end of that off? He was partial to living. This is, this is the people they're going, hang on, when you, remember Zechariah? When you see your king coming in on a donkey, that's not simply just the way to heaven. That is not simply just the forgiveness of sins. That is spelling the beginning of the end of the guy on the war horse. That the guy on the war horse is fixing to be taken out by the guy on the donkey. This was the end of oppression. Now, this is Luke 19. Check this. When they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. Hold on. 
The road going down the Mount of Olives is in the middle of a cemetery, right? When, the, when they go down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Remember, they're already, this is Passover. They're already given to singing. We're singing songs about God's will to deliver us from whoever's oppressing us. Then in the middle of that, this guy comes in on a donkey and somebody reminds them of a prophecy. This is only rallying them up even more. Blessed is the king who comes. Now what's going to happen here? What's going to happen is smart people are going to say, hush. Why? Who's on the other side of town coming in on a war horse? Pilate. And if Pilate hears you singing about a new king, they're going to hang us all on trees. The idea is, is smart people are going, can we hold this down for seven days till at least he's out of here, right? But these people are intent. They're singing, man. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. Watch what he says. Next slide. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. Where was he? He's in a cemetery. In other words, this is happening one way or the other. You're either with me or we'll have a resurrection. Your, your choice. Hey, you're either going to come in this with me or we'll have a bad episode of The Walking Dead right <laughs> now. Next slide. So here's our map. So Pilate came in on a war horse through hell. Jesus comes in on a donkey into the temple of God. And that is my best effort exploring the scripture. Let's spend a few minutes asking what's happening in us right now because of what we just explored. What does this story teach us? Not about what to believe, but how to fundamentally shape the way we see our whole world. Jesus should not just be somebody to be believed in. The way he saw the world, the way he saw God, the way he applied scripture should inform the way we see all things. There's a couple ways we can say this. Next slide. There's two ways to build your life. As a ruling empire or a humble servant. There's two ways to get where you want to go in life. You can rule my way or the highway. Or there's a better way to live. The way Jesus taught us to live was to come up underneath people and serve them. Maybe we could say it this way if that doesn't ring for your heart. Let's say it this way. There's two ways to build your life as an oppressor or as a liberator. There's two ways to do it. You can oppress people. You can get your way by making sure you lord over them and oppress them, or you can get your way by being part of their liberation process, their liberation story. Maybe we can say it a third way. There's two ways to build your life, from the gates of hell or from the house of God. You can bring hell to your whole world, or you can be known for being the person bringing heaven to your whole world. Heaven and hell are not primarily places we're supposed to think about going when we die, although we honor both of those and we say, yes, that's important. But right here in Toowoomba, we have a choice to bring hell to our world or we can be a part of bringing heaven. Maybe the easiest way to remember tonight is this. There's two ways to build your life. On the back of a war horse or on the back of a donkey. You can live your life as a war horse or you can live your life as a donkey. Let's be specific. Next slide. There are two ways to handle conflict. You can be a worse. My way or the highway. You don't do what I say. I'm going to make sure I make you pay. There's always donkey. There's always a better way to humble ourselves and sort of consider the other person better. 
Like one of the things that's disappointed me in this whole pandemic thing is, is the Christians being loud on the internet about their unwillingness to do basically small things to protect the community, as if we're called to exalt our personal freedom at the expense of the good of other people. Come on. There's two ways to do it. We could be war horses or we could be donkeys. There's two ways to deal with tragedy. You know, there's two ways to run your business. You could be a horse. My way or the highway, my employees bow to me. Of course, if you run your business that way, your employees find a way to chinch you, cheat you out of time, steal office supplies. But if you come underneath your employees and make them better, what I found is they'll, they'll do whatever they can to make that business better for you. There's two ways to live your life as a war horse or as a donkey. There's two ways to lead your ministry. It can be a war horse. Two ways to be a leader. War horse, my way or the highway. There's always donkey, people who get up underneath leaders, people who get up underneath people underneath them and make their life better. Let's say it this way, there's two ways to raise your family. There's two ways to be a husband. It could be a horse. There's two ways to treat your wife when she does something to disappoint you. It can be a horse. Refuse to speak to her for days and teach her a lesson about what she must do. There's always donkey. She does something that disappoints you. There's always a better way. There's always, oh, look. The sweet, beautiful mother of my children made a small mistake. <laughs> but because of everything else she brings to the table, we're going to overlook that and call it even. It's always donkey. Like every married person ever has paid the price for being right about a momentary mistake but lost the battle over long-term peace. Why would we do that? There's two ways to be a wife. There's wars. My way or the highway. Hey, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You could do that. You can be a critical, cantankerous, possessive, jealous, horrible person that your husband secretly prays for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. You can. There's two ways to respond when he leaves his underwear on the floor for the 18,000th time. There is. There's Warhorse. Pick up your underwear, you stupid idiot. Of course, we failed to realize that in that moment, a guy who would gladly die for the whole family if an intruder came in, you've insulted his intelligence over a pair of underwear. There's always donkey. Oh, look. The respectable, integrous, hardworking father of my children. A man who would gladly die for all of us has left his nasty, stinking underwear on the floor. But you know what? Because he would gladly die for all of us if an intruder came in tonight, I'll pick that up and we'll call that even. It's always donkey. Now you men, pick up your nasty drawers and light a match every now and then. You're disgusting. There's two ways to deal with disappointment. There's wars! can let everybody know where your rights have been violated. There's always donkey. There's getting together in a community meeting to brainstorm about how followers of Jesus can spend 100% of their energy doing good in their world and no energy on controversies or quarrels about the law. Maybe let's say it this way. There's two ways to handle it when things don't go your way. There's two ways to build your life. You can do it on the back of a war horse or you can look like Jesus where everything comes from the back of the donkey. And here's the beauty of the story. 
The only reason we even know the guy on the war horse's name is because he's tied in history to the guy on the donkey. Actually, you will never regret taking the lower road by taking the higher road. You will never, hey, if every single moment in your life, if 100% of the time you take the humbler, how can I prefer you road, you probably, you'll almost, ne- you'll maybe regret that 1% of the time because Jesus taught us to live a certain way. So let, let, let's, let's bring the white noise of our week and surrender it to Christ. And Lord, give us the courage to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Why don't you right now be brave enough to pray this prayer? Holy Spirit, where am I being a warhorse? Maybe you're here right now or you're listening online and you're married and you, sir, have treated your wife as a warhorse. And I want your marriage to be saved by you going to her and saying, would you please forgive me? I acted harshly. And if you give me the grace, I'd like to develop more donkey traits. Maybe you're a wife and you've treated your husband like a warhorse. Maybe you're a business owner and you know you've treated your employees that way. Maybe you're a community leader. Listen, maybe you're just a follower of Christ. And if you think about how we've acted in some of this stuff, it's like, wait a minute, we look like Pilate under the banner of Christ. That doesn't make any sense. Lord, would you speak to us about where we've been war horses and give us the courage to make that right. May you not just be somebody we believe in, but somebody that fundamentally shapes the way we see all things. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your night. I hope Jesus got bigger for you. The cross worked better. The resurrection is central and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. May you, my brothers and sisters, be Christians not experts in climate or policy or health or theology. May we see the world how Jesus saw it, see God how Jesus saw it, and see, apply Scripture how Jesus applied Scripture. May we say yes to the gift of God's breath today by hallowing it to wake up every day to make somebody else's life better. And may the Jesus story inform how we see how we husband, how we wife, how we father, how we mother, how we run businesses, how we treat people who cut us off in traffic, how we treat the waitress who's taken too long to take our order, how we do all those things. May you, my brothers and sisters, be the body of Christ in this community by being brave enough to understand faith and profound faith is understanding the way of life is found in the donkey. So may you, my brothers and sisters, approach everything in life from the standpoint of the donkey, but never, ever, ever be a jackass. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.